The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Johnson, the legendary blues guitarist, a true pioneer. Nobody played guitar and sang like this before Robert Johnson, at least as far as we know. This recording is from 1936. Here's what Bob Dylan wrote about Robert Johnson. Quote, when Johnson started singing, he seemed like a guy who could have sprung from the head of Zeus in full armor. I immediately differentiated between him and anyone else I had ever heard. His songs weren't customary blues songs. They were so utterly fluid. At first, they went by quick, too quick to even get. They jumped all over the place in range and subject matter, short, punchy verses that resulted in some panoramic story fires of mankind blasting off the surface of this spinning piece of plastic. End quote. Eric Clapton said that hearing Robert Johnson playing the blues changed his life. And Keith Richards said that when he first heard Robert Johnson, he asked, who's the other guy playing with him? He thought there were two guitars. It was indeed one guitar. But maybe there was another figure. Only maybe that figure wasn't a human. As legend has it, Robert Johnson was not always so great. In fact, he longed to be better. He was jealous of the other guitar players with superior talent. And so, he went out to the crossroads and made a deal with the devil. He sold his soul in exchange for learning to play the guitar like nobody else. The devil gave him the secret. Here's the version from Wikipedia. Quote, According to legend, as a young man living on a plantation in rural Mississippi, Johnson had a tremendous desire to become a great blues musician. He was instructed to take his guitar to a crossroad near Dockery Plantation at midnight. There, he was met by a large black man, the devil, who took the guitar and tuned it. The devil played a few songs and then returned the guitar to Johnson, giving him mastery of the instrument. This was a deal with the devil mirroring the legend of Faust. In exchange for his soul, Johnson was able to create the blues for which he became famous. End quote. This is an old tinny recording. It's been viewed on YouTube 17 million times. Because it's so good? Or because people are wondering, could it really be true? Could you really make a deal with the devil? What would happen if you did? Could you get talent like this? What else might you get? Would it be worth it? The song we're listening to is Crossroad Blues, which doesn't mention the devil. There's a song called Me and the Devil Blues, which has the lyrics, Early this morning when you knocked upon my door, and I said, Hello, Satan. I believe it's time to go. But this song, Crossroad Blues, is harder to bear if we believe the crossroad legend. Or even if we don't, 
even if it's just Robert Johnson who believes in it. Because in this one, he doesn't talk about walking with the devil or learning the guitar or the many women that came to him because of his supernatural ability. In Crossroad Blues, he sees the sun setting and he feels his soul sinking and he begs God for forgiveness and mercy and salvation. Robert Johnson may have invented rock and roll, as some say, pioneered it, but he didn't invent the idea of selling your soul to the devil. It has a long tradition, thousands of years old. As a literary myth, it goes back to Germany in the 14th century to a doctor-slash-alchemist-slash-charlatan-slash-miracle worker named Johann George Faust. And the works by Christopher Marlowe and Goethe and many, many others carried on that tradition. We're talking about the Faustian myth today on the History of Literature. Okay, let's get started. We have a great subject today, the Faustian literary myth. This would have been a good Halloween topic, but I couldn't wait that long. It was all triggered by a news article I read, not a literary piece. This is United States Senator Sheldon Whitehouse in a speech he recently gave on the Senate floor and in which he assessed the current state of America. Quote, many Republican members of Congress have made a Faustian bargain with Donald Trump. They don't admire him as a man, don't trust him as an administrator, but they respect the grip he has on their voters. The Republican Fausts are in an untenable position. The deal they've struck with the devil comes at too too high a price. It really will cost them their soul. End quote. A Faustian bargain. I love these literary adjectives when they pop up in everyday life. Kafkaesque. Quixotic, Orwellian. Some are secret pleasures that you see more in reviews or discussions of literature, Belovian, Monrovian. Some are a little strained. Greenland, or Graham Green, spelled with a, an extra E to signal that it's Graham Green and not the country. Works in print, maybe, but not when you read it aloud. Too much explanation required. And some never took off. When's the last time you heard of Beowulfian or Middlemarchist? And then there are some that should be better known. Updikian is not something anyone ever uses. I would have gone with updiclical. Wouldn't that wouldn't that be more likely to be used? It's updiclical prose? Maybe not. Anyway, Senator Whitehouse's speech reminded me that underneath our phrase Faustian There is a set of texts and a legend and a lot of inspiration. So I jumped into the rabbit hole, which is another good literary phrase, by the way, into the rabbit hole of Faust. What is the Faust legend? Where did it begin? What great works did it inspire? How has it changed over time? And what does it all mean for us today? First, let's sell some fish. We're sponsored today by Audible.com. Hey, If you're like me, you like podcasts, but sometimes you just need more. You need to go to the source material. Well, good news. Thanks to Audible and the History of Literature podcast, you can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com. 
There's over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. That's www.audibletrial.com slash HOL. I'm Jack Wilson, by the way. You can find more at historyofliterature.com and facebook.com slash historyofliterature. And now, Gar, you still have that breaking news theme? Ah, there we go. This is the part that really gets the suspense building. Yes, our prize giveaway is off to a rolling start. That's the news this week. This week, I'll be sending out the prizes to listeners who have signed up. And this first one goes to Debbie Tillsworth. She wrote an iTunes review and sent me a lovely email that included her address. So, let's see what she gets. Ah, yes. Chosen this especially for Debbie. It's a postcard with Anthony Burgess's A Clockwork Orange, the Penguin Edition on the cover. It's beautiful, beautiful colors. And it has a special uh, man wearing a bowler hat, and he's got a, a clock gear for an eye. Now, I chose this especially for Debbie because uh, Debbie told me that she and her husband have kind of an interesting set of hobbies. She collects ancient books, and her husband collects antique clocks. What a wonderful house that must be. Well, I hope this Anthony Burgess cover fits in there somewhere. Oh, this is fun. Let's do another one. How about Kitu from Canada? Another uh, fan of the show wrote in, sent his address. So I have chosen for him. He mentioned that he liked the Harlem Renaissance, asked if we could do a show on the Harlem Renaissance. So I've chosen for him. Beautiful postcard. It's got Langston Hughes, a quote from Langston Hughes. The quote is, my soul has grown deep like the rivers. As a, a silhouette of a man in a rowboat on top of a river. And the roots are coming down from the boat. It's a wonderful postcard put out by the folks at Bibliophilia. Okay. That goes out to him. Excellent. People. This is making my day. Congratulations to Debbie at Kitu. Having a lot of fun with this. Are you eligible if in your if uh, you're in Canada or anywhere in the world? Sure, why not? Postcards can go there, right? You can be a winner too. Just tell someone about the podcast, write a review, post about it on your Facebook page, or just grab one of your friends, wrestle them to the ground, stuff headphones in their ears, make them download the show. Well, maybe don't go that far. Don't commit a crime. Maybe it's enough to send out a tweet. And after you've spread the good news, shoot me an email at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. And I will ship you out one of these fabulous prizes. Wait, did I say the folks at Bibliophilia? It's actually Bibliophilia. And the folks are at Obvious State Studio. Credit where credit is due. They have really uh, put together a really nice collection of postcards here. Okay, enough fishmongering. Let's get back to Faust.
Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Howard Mansing, the writer and encyclopedist, wrote that Don Quixote, Hamlet, Don Juan, and Faust are probably the greatest modern literary myths. But what is a literary myth? What does that mean? For Mansing, it's having a context outside of the original text. We recognize a Faustian character just as we recognize Sherlock Holmes, for example, without any reference to the original writings. Ian Watt gives a similar list of literary myths, or actually, myths of individualism. He includes Robinson Crusoe as well. You could probably add some others, but Faust is a good choice. He belongs. Our two main authors are going to be Christopher Marlowe and Goethe, but the list of artists who took up the Faust story in some form or another is long and diverse. Here's a sampling. Mostly playwrights. Lessing, Pushkin, George Sand, Heinrich Hein, Gertrude Stein, Fernando Pessoa, Dorothy L. Sayers, Paul Valery, Vaclav Havel, and David Mamet. Poets reworking Faust have included Lord Byron, Baudelaire, Hart Crane, Joseph Brodsky, Carol Ann Duffy, and of course, short stories and novels like Matthew Lewis's The Monk, Washington Irving's The Devil and Tom Walker, Hawthorne's Young Goodman Brown, Turgenev, Louisa May Alcott, Robert Louis Stevenson, Oscar Wilde, Bulgakov with The Master and Margarita, Thomas Mann, William Gaddis, Walker Percy, Philip K. Dick. The list is long, too long. Stephen King, of course, John Banville, Sherman Alexie. All of these people writing these literary myths, the story of someone bargaining their soul, selling their soul to the devil in exchange for something that the person desperately wants. We come a long way from the original story. It's astonishing how many people have treated this theme. Composers, too. Beethoven, Liszt, Schubert, Wagner, Mendelssohn, Berlioz, Mahler, many others. Then there's video games, manga and anime, graphic novels, popular music, there are the blues-influenced guitarists that I mentioned, Clapton and Keith Richards, sorry, Keith Richards, and so on, following in the, in the wake of Robert Johnson. But there's also Randy Newman, Radiohead, Tenacious D, Frank Zappa, Tom Waits, the band, of course, the Charlie Daniels band. 
Where did all this come from? Marlowe appears to have been the earliest to dramatize the story, and I think he was the first important playwright to do so. He was working from source material, from something called the Faustbuch, which told the story of the real-life Dr. Faust. The historical Faust was a man who lived in Germany in the late 15th and early 16th centuries. His name was Dr. Johann George Faust, and he traveled the countryside, moving from town to town and causing trouble everywhere he went. Ostensibly, he was an alchemist and an astrologer and a magician. He seems to have gotten up to a lot of tricks. People believed him and hated him and were drawn to him. And from records we have, it's a little impossible to know exactly what he was doing. These records, you have to think about where these records come from. It is the story of someone who was fooled. They might say that the trick really happened. They saw it with their own eyes. No one wants to consider themselves a patsy, someone who's easily duped. It's a prosecutor, even more likely to be a little bit biased, right? The inquisitors or witch hunters have an incentive to shade the truth, to ascribe actual black magic powers to someone whom they've drowned or burned. You don't want to admit that you tortured someone who pulled off a card trick. On the other hand, there could have been some actual magic going on. Chemistry can do awe-inspiring things. A high school chemistry teacher in 2017 could probably make a fortune in 1487, making liquids change colors or producing steam or loud noises or flashes of light. And I'm not discounting actual black magic either. Who knows? I wasn't there. So, Faust was born in either 1480 or 1466, depending on some conflicting records of exactly which person the real Faust was. He appears to have been born in Helmstadt. The record picks up in 1506, where Faust appears as a performer of magical tricks and horoscopes. And for the next 30 years, we see these records in city archives and surviving letters. He claimed to be a physician, a doctor of philosophy, an alchemist, a magician, and an astrologer, and he was often accused of being a fraud. The church denounced him as a blasphemer in league with the devil. I love this detail about the story, too. In 1506, Faust seems to have started his work as a performer. This is where he shows up in the records for the first time, and he's consistently in the records after that. And in 1507, another trickster and fraud appeared. He called himself Faustus Jr. (laughs) It didn't take long. Faustus Jr. claimed that he could easily reproduce all the miracles of Christ. That easily, so perfect. He could could reproduce all the miracles of Christ easily. He was given a teaching position because why not? What other qualification do you need? Then he got into some trouble with some male students and had to flee the city to escape punishment. I love this world, the world of southern Germany in 1507, where strangers are coming to town with their claims of magic and their implications that their magic has a supernatural source. I'm assuming that these people could pull off a flash of light or something maybe some magic powder. 
and a lot of hoaxes. Maybe they had plants in the audience who would faint and be revived by the healer, or who would think of a number or a name that could then be guessed by Dr. Faust. Maybe they could make a stick appear to be rubber by holding it between two fingers, the way we do now with a pencil. Who knows what they tried? Or maybe they just talked and talked and talked and told people what they wanted to hear. Their future, as forecast by the stars. Legends surrounded the historical Faust, and maybe Faust himself encouraged them. An account from 1548 said that Faust traveled with a dog and a horse, and the dog was rumored to transform into a servant now and then. Another account, written in 1562, which was four years after Faust's death, said that Faust had claimed that the victories of the German emperor were due to Faust's magical intervention. And once, this one, this one, this one is positively delightful. Once in Venice, Faust attempted to fly, but he was thrown to the ground by the devil. Or, as the rest of us tend to call it, gravity. I really would have loved to be there for that one, for that particular fraud. And now I will attempt to fly. Maybe Faust even believed that he could do it. Or maybe he was baited into it by an angry mob. If you're a magician, well then why can't you fly? Well, I can fly. And one thing leads to another, and he's at the end of his rope, at the end of a pitchfork. Pretty soon, you're going to have to try if you are going to get out of this town alive. And so you climb up a tree or a second-story window, and you think, well, Satan, we've had a long run together. If you're ever going to be on my side, this is the time. Or maybe you think, I've been training for this moment all my life. Maybe it will work. And you jump. For a brief second, you soar. And then you crash to the ground. And so you jump up, shouting that a devil has thrown you to the ground. <laughs> a crowd of a hundred is gathered, in my imagination, this is how it goes. A crowd of a hundred is gathered, and 97 of them think you're a fraudster. And one mayor wants to run you out of town at the end of his pitchfork. But that leaves two. Two believers. Two who are sure you could have done it if only the devil hadn't thrown you down. Maybe that two is twenty. Maybe it's fifty. People want to believe, and the story spreads. In another story, an eyewitness claimed that Faust arrived for dinner and gave him, quote, a strange kind of poultry, end quote. Could that have been a turducken? History is silent. In another account, we learn that Dr. Faust was arrested in Battenberg because of his encounter with a local chaplain, a man named Dorstinius. Faust, the good doctor, recommended a substance to help Dorstinius get rid of his stubble. No more shaving. Just... Rub this special liquid on your face. Dorstinius listened to him and smeared special substance all over his face, and it worked. The stubble was removed. The only problem was that the substance was actually arsenic, and it removed most of his skin as well. A wonderful story, this itinerant doctor surrounded by 
pseudoscience and rumors of satanic powers? How did it make its way into literature? Well, there were plenty of nonfiction works using nonfiction liberally. Faust's spells and potions and astrology, those were published throughout his life. And then a biography of sorts came out in 1587, which reprinted many of the legends about the man himself. This was translated into English, where it was read by the young and extraordinarily talented Christopher Marlowe, a playwright who was no stranger to biographical mystery himself. Marlowe was, of course, a contemporary of Shakespeare's, one of the most worthy of them, who was born the same year as Shakespeare, but achieved his success much earlier. He influenced Shakespeare and maybe collaborated with him, although this is contested, and some believe he was actually was the author of Shakespeare's plays, which is probably not the case, although it is interesting that Shakespeare didn't come to prominence until after Marlowe died. Marlowe was stabbed to death and may have been a spy, and everything about both of these incidents is hazy, but fascinating. We'll definitely have to do a full episode on Marlowe soon. But for now, let's take a look at his great tragedy of 1589, The Tragical History of Dr. Faustus. Marlowe gets the central drama of the story. Do you want more than you have? What are you willing to do to get it? What happens if a doctor, someone who believes in science, learns everything it is possible to know, more than any person alive, and yet still has questions? And what if one of the things the doctor has learned is how to conjure up a demon, and then learns how to control the demon to some extent? Wouldn't that make you, if you were the doctor, maybe make is too strong a word, wouldn't that tempt you to ask for more? But if you believe in heaven or hell, you know what the bargain is. There are angels and demons in this world, and you're siding with the demons. And that is the path to hellfire. Marlowe didn't need to find this in the story of Dr. Faustus because it's in the theology of Christianity. It comes from the dilemma of good and evil, of God and Satan. Jesus was tempted. The devil offered these things to Jesus as well. The pleasures of the body, the pleasures of power. Those are the most common Faustian concepts, by the way. Youth, physical pleasure or lust, wealth, power, fame, and knowledge. Knowledge is the one that always appealed to me, maybe because it's the one I first associated with Faust. Knowing the secrets of the universe, knowing that God exists, and where he lives, and what he's doing, knowing how he created the earth, knowing all the things that my Sunday school teachers told me that we have to accept as an unknowable mystery. I don't think I'd sell my soul for those, but it would be nice not to have to wait. So, Marlowe's Faust, this is a tragedy because Marlowe's Faust signs away for 24 years of service. Then after 16 years, he wants to withdraw, but Mephistopheles persuades him to renew the bargain. Mephistopheles here pulls out the big guns at the 16-year mark, producing Helen of Troy. Here you go, Faust, the most beautiful woman in history. Dr. Faustus can't resist. And in the end, he dies a horrible death. When the 24 years are over, Satan, the chief of devils, appears. Faust has a kind of last supper. And then, at midnight, there's a great noise in Faust's room. 
In the morning, the walls and floors are found splattered with blood and brains. And actually, this part of the story probably comes from the historical Faust, who appears to have died in a horrible fashion, an alchemical experiment gone wrong, which produced an explosion that blew the good doctor to smithereens. And the rumor quickly spread that he had been torn apart by demons. Rumors travel fast, and rumors involving demons and black magic travel even faster, as anyone with a Ouija board knows. On Friday night, when I was in junior high school, the girls in my class would have a slumber party in which they ran their fingers around a Ouija board. And by Monday morning, the entire school would know what Satan had told them. Elizabethan England, it seems, was no different. The writer William Prynne claimed in his 1632 work, Histriomatics, that actual demons had appeared on stage during a performance of Marlowe's play, quote, to the great amazement of both the actors and spectators, end quote. Some people were allegedly driven mad by the sight of these demons on the stage, and the actor Edward Allen was reported to have devoted his later years to charitable endeavors to rid himself of the curse of having played a part in this demonic event. Whether or not the plague conjured up actual demons to appear on stage, Marlowe did introduce a number of innovations to the Faust myth and its dramatization. It's a wonderful play, full of fascinating ideas. The real tragedy, apart from the horrific death at the end, is that Faustus is blind to his salvation, even as angels beg him to repent and revoke his oath. He keeps going, drawn to magic, even when it appears that the magic is not all that he might have hoped for. He asks Mephistopheles a series of scientific questions. Mephistopheles appears not to know the answer, and finally delivers a meaningless phrase in Latin. Translated, it means, quote, through unequal motion with respect to the whole thing. End quote. It's a meaningless. <laughs> through unequal motion with respect to the whole thing. That's the answer. Then Faust asks, well, who made the world? And Mephistopheles gets angry because the answer is God and he cannot say the name. Even this, even these disappointments are not enough to get Faustus to repent. He's too drawn to magic, which he ends up using mainly for practical jokes, which has led to the immortal phrase, when it comes time to sell your soul, 24 years of service in exchange for magic is worth considering, but in the end, $5 for a joy buzzer and a whoopee cushion is probably a better deal. We can't not mention Goethe and his two-part play, Faust, has a claim as the greatest work in the history of German literature. It's not really a play to be performed, and it rarely is, but it's readable. It's packed with everything, it seems, all current ideas, all poetic forms. He wrote it over a period of 50 or even 60 years. The earliest forms of the work were developed between 1772 and 1775. The first appearance in print was in 1790. Faust Part 1 was published in 1806. Faust Part 2 was finished in 1831. It covers an astonishing range of territory. The poetic meter goes from doggerel through terzerima to six-foot trimeter. The forms include Greek tragedy and medieval mystery, Baroque allegory, Renaissance mask, 
and Commedia dell'arte. And there's theology, mythology, philosophy, political science, economics, science, aesthetics, music, and literature. All in this play about this despairing magician who makes a pact with Mephistopheles, who helps him seduce Gretchen, the love of Faust's life, which ends in tragedy. Gretchen becomes pregnant with an illegitimate child. Faust is condemned by Gretchen's brother. Faust and Mephistopheles together kill the brother. Gretchen then drowns her illegitimate child and is convicted of murder. Faust and the demon try to orchestrate her escape, but she refuses. And as Faust and Mephistopheles flee, voices from heaven announce... Well, that's interesting. In the earliest draft of the play, they they announce she is condemned. But in the actual published draft, the voices announce she shall be saved. Part two doesn't take up this story at all. Instead, Faust wakes up in a field of fairies and ends up in heaven. The happy ending here is somewhat at odds with the previous centuries of Faust. All of those said, you do a deal with the devil, you die, you're condemned. That's the punishment. But by emphasizing the salvation in Goethe, what do we get? A view of of God's mercy or of human frailty? That no mistake is not too great? That salvation is impossible? Perhaps we get the, the view of the romantics. This was the era Goethe was writing in. He himself was a great romantic writer. We get the romantic view that experience on earth should be welcomed and valued, not punished. Who can blame a scientist for wanting to know more? Who can blame a young man for wanting to live and love and seek pleasure and live a life with gusto? Embracing life, is that such a sin? One imagines that for Goethe, even looking back on the first Dr. Faust, racing from town to town, living by his wits, seeking out a life beyond the ordinary? The answer to that might be, no, it's not a sin. Or at least, it's not one we need to blast a man into hell for. So that's Goethe. And then there were many, many other versions of Faust. Where does it all leave us today? Belief in God and heaven is still high among the people today. Belief in Satan and hell is dropping somewhat according to polls, but it's still a lot of people, hundreds of millions of people around the world believe in some sort of punishing afterlife. A lot of people are maybe like me. I would probably answer the survey question that I don't believe in hell. And yet, in actual life, I catch myself thinking that it it might be true and acting accordingly. Good and evil are very powerful concepts. Once when I was in graduate school, I met a man from Ireland who was getting his PhD in literature. And at a party, he told me with a perfectly straight face that Satan often appeared to him in dreams. I was riveted. What does he look like in those dreams? This man said, he looks like Satan, you know, the devil. And I said, well, what does that look like? Is he dressed in red, holding a pitchfork? Does he have horns and a tail? And this man got very angry 
at me, and he said, No, it's a little more sophisticated than that. And he told me that the, the devil in his dreams wore a dark suit and had a narrow face with sharp, angular features and very thick black hair brushed back, greased back, swooping off his forehead. And they always met in a diner. Is that more sophisticated than the devil in red with a pitchfork and a horns and a tail? I guess it is. Although, frankly, I always find the stories of Satan's appearance as when he appears as just a whirlwind or heavy breathing in a dark room to be more terrifying. In high school, a lot of kids dabbled with satanic messages and viewpoints, probably to drive their parents crazy. A girl at school was rumored to be a witch, a rumor that she herself promoted. People would walk around with the satanic Bible for shock value, maybe out of curiosity, form of rebellion. Maybe there was something of interest there. Some of the more religious kids said that God liked satanic ideas because it showed belief in the whole system. None of it made much sense to me, but I hated seeing it. It spooked me. I didn't like the impulse to be reading the satanic Bible. It struck me as being like hard drugs or violent rituals or anything that involves something that could get a little out of your control. What if you read that and never recovered? What if you took a trip and never came back? And some of it, some of this interest in the satanic was laughable. One kid used to hold up his hand in the shape of goat's horns and tell us to worship Satan. But his voice cracked and he had a speech impediment. So he would say, Worship Satan. <coughs> Cough and say, I have to summon the voice. Worship Satan. And other kids would yell at him and say he wasn't summoning anything because nobody had ever heard of Satan speaking with a lisp. That was comical, but I would think about taking shortcuts. I knew the impulse. You want something so bad that you would do anything for it. The Faustian impulse. I played basketball for hours and hours, and I knew I would never be my hero, Michael Jordan. I could barely grab the rim, let alone take off from the free throw line and dunk it. But there was nothing I wanted to do more. All the other things I wanted, money, girls, fame, well, those would all follow, wouldn't they? Wouldn't they follow if I could play basketball like Michael Jordan? Wouldn't I have everything in the world that I wanted? And sure, I practiced hard. But I lived in reality. No amount of practice can turn your jumping ability from where mine was into Michael Jordan's. So at night, I would go to sleep. I'd be drifting off to sleep, dreaming about a pair of shoes that would rocket me to wherever I wanted to go. Help me take off from the free throw line, or why not? Half court. Even farther. 
Why not surpass Michael Jordan if you're going to dream like that? With my magic shoes. Then I would think about maybe it would be better if I had a basketball that I controlled with my mind. Or if my mind could control any basketball. I could make shots from anywhere. I would never miss. And I thought, it'd be a little strange, though, in my current body to be out there with the NBA players. Maybe they would suspect that I was, something was amiss, and I was doing things through black magic. And I thought, what if, as I controlled this ball with my mind, I could hang on to the ball as it carried me through the air? In which case I could dunk from the free throw line. I could I could disguise my lack of physical ability. Then I would drift off to sleep. Thinking about how perfect life would be. I wouldn't sell my soul for that. But I would pray to God to see if maybe I could get it that way. Preferably in time for Friday's game. It's a big one. Hey, what can I say? I still buy lottery tickets now and then, too. So where does all this leave us today? The Faustian myth is still going strong. What conditions make a society inclined to produce the Faustian myths? Well, it seems to me, first you need a society full of belief. Belief in the devil, I suppose. On the other hand, maybe that's not necessarily something you need. I'm not so sure. Any belief in the afterlife or any belief in karma or even the perils of hubris. Right? Christopher Marlowe in his play actually pointed us to the story of Icarus. That in of itself can be kind of viewed as a proto-Faustian bargain. Anytime you can make a deal for short-term gain or you're fooling yourself about the long-term pain or the aftermath or the fallout, or the inevitable consequences, it all depends on what we consider Faustian. And Senator Whitehouse, in the quote that we read at the outset of this episode, that's how he uses Faustian, right? He doesn't think the politicians went out to the crossroads and made a literal deal. He means they are staining their soul, their reputation, their good name, their moral high ground, in order to get something they desperately want. The cost, he believes, is higher than they should have paid. And eventually, this will catch up to them. It also helps to have a society full of accusers. If you see devils and witches everywhere, if you are the moral judges of your fellow citizens, if a few charlatans or maybe just believers are practicing magic and other kinds of fraud, and you want to root those people out, maybe that helps bring about a the conditions that make it possible for the Faustian myths to arise. A lot of the historical Faust characters weren't claiming that they had sold their souls. It was an allegation that others hurled at them. All this seems to be a society not at peace with itself, a society that reacts strongly to outsiders, a society not comfortable with the strange and weird and shadowy. And of course, for a Faustian myth to flourish, 
You need individuals who are not at peace. Individuals who are jealous, covetous, or possessed by some kind of need. Saul Bellow, in his book Henderson the Rain King, had a protagonist who couldn't stop the voice in his head, saying, I want, I want, I want. It's a modern disease. Maybe modern, maybe ancient as well. This life is all we have, seemingly. This life and the next. If you really want something, if you're desperate for knowledge, for sex, for wealth, for fame, the great temptation is to mortgage the future for the present. To trade your afterlife for something you desperately want in the here and now. We want these things so badly. We know the price we will pay. We'll give everything we have. But everything we have might not be enough for what we want. Our want is too great. We need to go further into our future and start appealing to angels and demons. The supernatural entities who will traffic in a different kind of currency. But you'd better be sure. Because when you mortgage your house, you can shop around. But when you mortgage your soul, there's only one broker. Only one place to go to cut a deal. And you can meet him, maybe in a diner. Or maybe on the outskirts of town. Out where two lonely roads come together. And strangers encounter strangers. And dark deals are made. Johnson again. You know, it occurred to me as I was listening to this that the Faustian bargain when it comes to music is different from the other Faustian bargains because we participate in the Faustian bargain when it comes to music. If someone is asking for a lot of money or for youth, we might see what that would be like for them. When it comes to the deal with the devil... To invent a new kind of music or to have a talent that no one else has had before. What we hear is what we can presume, if we accept the story as true, that we are hearing the devil's music. This is how the devil would bestow his dark talent upon someone else. If we accept the legend, we accept that Johnson sold his soul to the devil for talent and creativity. But we also get to hear what the devil came up with to give him in return. It lets us wonder if what we're hearing is otherworldly, supernatural, created by a demonic genius.
that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Nice to have that music of the angels back, isn't it? I hope you enjoyed it. Please subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. We'll be back next time with, well... Oh, what do we have? Mike Palindrome is going to return soon with his list of great books that you don't have to read. You can check out his recommendations at Literature SC, by the way. He's tweeting a book a day for 10 years. It's coming up on four months. Is he running out yet? Not even close, apparently. What else? Authors, more good authors lined up telling us about their favorite books. I have a special St. Patrick's Day episode in the works. Hopefully we'll get that put together in time. So sign up, dear listeners, if you haven't already. Oh, and remember to send me your address in an email, and I'll send you one of these prizes. Congratulations to all the winners so far. Congratulations, and thank you. From the bottom of my heart, or perhaps I should say my soul I know, I know some of you probably think I sold my soul already how else could a podcast be this good just on sheer industry and talent there must be a demon in there somewhere must be a dark deal with a demon actually there is a demon his name is Gar and he works against me as often as (laughs) settle down Gar What would you sell your soul for, Gar? Power? Knowledge? Hmm? A a ball-peen hammer. I don't know how you got the way you are. Anyway, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.